Welcome to Paradox Jukebox, an unconventional podcast for the unconventional music lover, brought to you by Music on the Move Studios, a woman-led company working to help musicians move their careers forward through education and live events. I'm your host, Katie Thompson. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode 15 of season three today. I can't believe that this season is literally almost over. We have pretty much a month to go. That's just crazy to me. It's been a wild ride so far. Well, anyway, let's talk about today's artist. Her name is Anastasia Elliott, and she is currently out of Nashville, Tennessee, and she is a symphonic pop rock artist, and I freaking love it. It is so cool. Everything about Anastasia's music is just, it draws me in, and I cannot wait to do even more deep dives and, like, you know, just start binging her music. Um, What I will say is this. You need to go to her website and you need to get immersed in the entire experience that is Anastasia Elliott. That's right. She is an experience. And I love it when artists go all in hardcore like she does. She She's not just a musician. She's not just an incredible songwriter. She is also a visual artist. All of the music videos that coincide with her music releases she has a massive massive part in and actually the coming videos that have not even been released yet she has directed herself and I'm just super excited to see what she turns out because her previous videos are so incredibly just eye-catching and just mesmerizing and and she does them with a team with with a small little team in Nashville it's you know it's not like it's done by a massive production company she has a very close-knit circle of people that she works with and you can tell that they are absolutely a team by the way that all of her music comes out and the way that her music videos are directed and produced I mean it this is top-notch high-quality art and like I said you have to go to the website and you just have to get immersed into the experience that is Anastasia Elliott so I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna play a, a track that she just recently released called bones and I hope that you enjoy it
Welcome everybody to Paradox Jukebox. It is your host, Katie Thompson. And with me today, I have Anastasia Elliott. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for coming on. I was ex- I was super excited when Derek had reached out to me and sent me, you know, some of your material and some of Paige's material. I was like, oh, I just found two artists that I am super in love with right now. <laughs> so when when he sent over your your videos and your links and stuff, I especially for you, I don't know what it is. I maybe just like the edginess of your videos is incredible and and I love your music you are you are a fantastic artist so um you know for all of our listeners I want them to get a really good idea of who you are so can you can you talk about your origin story like where are you from and what got you into music I'm from Houston Texas originally and now I'm based in Nashville but um I grew up there and my love for music really came from my early upbringing, being really immersed in the opera world and the symphony and the ballet. Like since I was born, I was attending those events really frequently and fell kind of in love with dramatic and theatrical visuals and how kind of music can be one aspect to a bigger, you know, bigger creation. And that's how I approach music, even though I'm in like modern music. For me, like a song is not complete without a visual or without like a whole world built around it. But I think that really comes from my early upbringing in those arts where you've got the costuming and the dance and the sets and the music and it's just, beautiful productions. So that's really what got me into music. I started training and playing classical piano when I was four years old and then opera when I was nine and loved classical music a whole lot, but definitely was not like my path to just be a classical artist. I lasted about two months at Boston Conservatory and was like, no, I think I'm going to take all this knowledge and skill that I have and put it into something that I want to do. Yeah. So I moved to Nashville by myself when I was 16 years old and it was a pretty crazy, awesome, isolating, insane experience and started writing music for my own project. And it took me quite a a couple years to really like start writing songs that I felt like were exactly what I wanted to be as an artist. And that process takes a while. I think a lot of people rush that process, but we wound up writing 300 songs for the first album and to then got it down to 12. Uh, and um, that album's coming out soon. It's been done and ready for a long time, but it's been through many industry heartbreaks and changed hands a lot. And now it's all mine. And she's coming out soon. So congratulations. <laughs> That's kind of my, I mean, there's so much to my story. I mean, my album was birthed out of my plane crash and then saw me through the loss of a major record deal. And then the loss of my voice where I was silent for 75 days. And so this record is like really symbolic of a lot of the like trauma that I've gone through in my life and how I've kind of like taken back my power and 
you know, made something gold out of darkness. So that's kind of my artist life in a nutshell. (laughs) I know so many story tangents to go on. I have quite a complicated story. (laughs) I'm sitting here going, oh my God, I have so many questions. Um, Okay. So first of all, massive congratulations for writing 300 songs and actually being able to narrow it down to 12 that blew my mind for a second. <laughs> um, but okay, so you it's said kind of you... sad though, because there's so many songs on my hard drive that like I think are great songs, but they they weren't these songs. But they, I'm like maybe uh, I'm starting to like produce some of them as like you know demos for myself to start sending out for sync because I'm like it's sad to me that these songs will never be heard. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you're that you're pursuing, you know, the sync avenue with those songs, because, you know, even even if those weren't the right songs for this album, that doesn't mean that they're not the right songs for different projects. So kudos to you for for, you know, seeing through that and being like, well, I can still use, you know, these other 200 and some odd songs. Um, but so, okay, really quick, take me back for a second. You said that you studied at Boston Conservatory for a minute, right? And, but then you, you moved to Nashville by age 16. So what age were you, uh, when you were at Boston Conservatory? I went for like, um, it was like a summer, like to see if I liked it, like two, it was like two months between I think my freshman year and sophomore year of high school so I kind of got to see what no it was my between my sophomore year and junior year because then I left high school my junior year to move to Nashville and do this and I I the deal was I could move and do this if I got a real high school degree no GED so I finished online even though it maybe took me a couple years longer than it should have wow (laughs) But yeah, I was, um, it was like a summer at Boston Conservatory and I got in on, um, a jazz song and an opera song and, and I wanted, I was like already like wanting to play with different sounds and they were like opera musical theater. And I was like, well, I hate musical theater. So we're going to stick with opera. And, and I just felt so like, I don't know. It's a, I love opera so much, but it's a very stuffy you know, there's a right way to do things. And I'm somebody that does not like to do things the right way. So it just gotcha. didn't work. I I understand that. I, I too went to a conservatory. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So I'm, I'm from Ohio originally, and I went to Capital University Conservatory of Music. Oh, wow. I, uh, I'm a classical percussionist, but all of my oh, best cool. friends were in the vocal department. <laughs> So, yes. so I, I played percussion on, um, Mozart's Cosi Fantuti and, um, a couple other, you know, a couple other things. Yeah. So I, I totally understand. Um, so, so when you decided to make the, the move to Nashville, like at 16 years old and you were by yourself, that is incredible. I mean, there's, there's plenty of people that moved to Nashville, like in their twenties, like after college and stuff, you mm-hmm. were a teenager and you knew your mind because yeah. I don't, I don't know of any 16 year olds that would be strong enough to be like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. Can you, can you yeah. talk to me about like why that was such a big draw for you? Like, what was it at the age of 16 that you just, you were like, I need to go to Nashville. 
Yeah, um, I wound up spending most of my sophomore year of school writing, like traveling a lot and writing in New York, Nashville, and LA. And out of all three cities, I, I'm a very like music, melody, com- composition heavy writer. And I loved being here with all of the, like at the time there was no, not really anything other than country here. And I was one of the first kind of like eclectic left of center people to move here. And I was pulling in a lot of the like big country writers into these pop sessions because I loved their poetic storytelling. And when I would write in LA, it would be a little bit more like, how many songs can we get in a day? It was like very fast. And they were like, you know, they moved a lot quicker than I liked to move. And when I was here, these great writers would spend like a couple of days like working with me to get the perfect like the right song and to like really develop it and so that's definitely what drew me here but I wound up meeting a producer that we just really clicked and began working together like every single day and he was the reason why I kind of picked up and moved here but when I moved here I didn't know I was moving here I just came here for the summer and then I didn't leave and I wound up living in a corporate apartment for like a year but um all of my friends at the time are like, I mean, I don't even know that I could call them friends now with my, like, my definition of friends, but the people that I considered to be my friends back then were all a lot older than me, and they were, you know, writers in their 30s with established careers, and I wasn't, like, anywhere that I was meeting other people my age, and so most of my friends were 10 years, 12 years older than me, if not more, And so I couldn't go out with them. Like I couldn't go to bars. I couldn't go anywhere. So a lot of my time was spent like going to the studio most days and writing and then being like completely by myself. And a lot of like, I mean, it's kind of like sad when I think about it now looking back on myself because I would get like super dressed up and like go sit at sit at the bar. And like I was friends with all these bartenders at restaurants, restaurant bars, not like bar bars but like I would go sit in like nice restaurants with like a book at night just to like be around people and talk to these like waiters and the waiters like became my friends because that was really the only place that I was getting social interaction outside of the studio because if not I was just by myself wow. and it was a very uh, it made me grow up fast that's for sure it was very wonderful in so many ways and but I, I mean even when I was in school I, I wasn't I didn't really fit in with many people my age ever so it just kind of was what it was but I feel like in the last like it took me a long time to really make friends that I felt like were real and it honestly the last like five years it's been like only the last five years that I can say I've got great friends (laughs) real (laughs) friends wow (laughs) music was my friend sure yeah well and I mean, moving to a city, obviously, that is, you know, I mean, Broadway is, you know, tourist trap central with all of its bars and things. I mean, I can't imagine how isolating that could be for you at times. Yeah, I definitely remember, like, many days where, like, getting out of my pajamas, I would just, like, stay home and, like, I don't know, like, looking back at it now, I was like, damn, I really probably, like... (laughs) I don't know. I don't know that I would change anything though, because what, what it was is what, what made me, me know. Yeah. But it was definitely a, an interesting and isolating experience. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm sure that in some ways, you know, it songwriters typically when we go through, you know, bouts of isolation or even like kind of down periods, like 
we tend to heavily rely on playing music and writing so mm-hmm. that we can, you know, kind of shed some of that negativity or, you know, and maybe even in some ways, maybe it wasn't negative, but do you think that having all of that time to really focus on your writing is like, was that good for you or do you feel like maybe it was detrimental? Um, I definitely think it, it helped me to develop what I wanted to be as an artist because I had so much time to just be with myself and to honestly like go into the wells of darkness like I think my main thing as an artist is taking heavy subjects or you know dark vibes and and kind of putting a dramatic and light spin on them and I think pushing myself into those situations that were really uncomfortable or not ideal made me have to explore darkness and like sit with myself and I think that that made me a better artist I didn't usually spend a lot of time writing alone because I would write all day and I loved co-writing but I played a lot of piano I spent a lot of time playing piano and it definitely made me like I don't know that's when I explored like interesting chord structures and like different things I just saw that my computer has six percent like how horrible of me that I did not bring my charger in here I'm gonna bring you with me so we can keep talking but I'm okay. gonna <laughs> sure no problem <laughs> get a little tour of my house from all studio right. to bedroom but yeah I love I all of the lights <laughs> being alone definitely impacted my artistry absolutely well and I think that you know it's 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 interesting for me to to kind of like think about like you know what was I doing at the age of 16 I was in marching band I was in a cover band and I had you know I had const almost constant human interaction it it seems Uh and so that's it's just very unique because even though I was practicing and really working on you know getting to the point where I could um you know, even just like audition for college, I feel like had I maybe had more time to myself, maybe I could have, you know, been maybe even just a little bit more prepared for for college and for what I wanted my music to sound like. Because at that point yeah. in my life, I was just focused on playing as much music as I could and not necessarily writing. I didn't even start writing until I was maybe not not really, really writing until I was in my 20s. So. Yeah. This is a very, very unique thing. Um, so, okay, so I actually never really. Uh, this is kind of the first time I've ever really talked about this in an interview. So you got you got a new topic. All right, I love that. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Um, so I think one of the best moments of my artistry or like my artist journey have always come from some weird moment where I was forced to be isolated or like you know forced into something weird like that, uncomfortable. Sure. Sure. Well, it you know, kind of forced you into, you know, like being introspective, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, so you had mentioned uh, something about a, a plane crash. Yes. And are, are you comfortable talking about that? If, if oh, not, yeah, it's I okay. I talk about it all the time. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm an open book. 
Uh, awesome, awesome. So, so talk to me about the plane crash. Like, where did this fall in your timeline? Yeah, um, it was 2013. Um, I was 18, and I wrote "Crash Landing," which is the first song on the album. Three months before I was in the plane crash, and when I wrote "Crash Landing," I didn't really like know what I was writing about. And I found that this happens a lot in my art and my creation. Is I don't always like know what I'm creating. I kind of just like let things like flow for me. And and it was just like a song and I was, I really loved it. And it was one of the first songs that I was like, yeah, this is like me. This is exactly what I want to do. And then I was in a crash landing and the headlines for it were crash landing. And I was like, shit, I need to start writing songs about winning the lottery. But um, <laughs> I say I manifested that plane crash and that plane crash became my best teacher in life. Really? Yeah, it was a pilot error. The pilot crashed the landing gear into the plane. It was a Southwest plane at LaGuardia. And um, it was life-changing in so many ways. And I never want to go through that again, but I would never trade that experience for anything in the world. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that, I don't know if it's going to be weird for me to say this, but it's almost like, like you had a premonition of sorts. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think when I analyze a lot of my work, like now with more knowledge or more space from it, I see plenty of things that I didn't realize I was like expressing expressing at the time or like things that I was writing about that like then became very true in my life. And I think art, especially when you create from like a place of connected flow, you're, you are tapping into something and who knows, maybe we do get some types of premonitions or, or, you know, where it's all energy. So maybe, you know, as we, as we speak it, it over and over again and like work it into our life, it, it, becomes yeah absolutely well um would you say that like when you get into your creative process and you're like you know you're getting ready to write like how how important is it for you to get into that headspace where you can channel that energy or does it just come naturally to you um I think I work on headspace all the time so I think I just kind of keep myself in that place um I'm a huge believer in things like meditation and tapping. And I'm kind of somebody that's always trying to learn more about myself and to like, I seek out all kinds of healing modalities and I'm always trying to like dive deeper and uncover new layers and like fix things. I'm a fixer. So I think keeping me in that kind of state just allows me to be there all the time. It doesn't mean that like in every medium of thing that I do, it's always like readily available, but I think even the things I think I'm weak in, like bringing people in that, you know, compliment me, it's still that flow that I'm always in that I'm able to create the container for creation. And it, it just, just flows like that. That's, that's really interesting. I know, you know, some of my other friends, like we talk about how sometimes like we have to really check our headspace before we go into a room. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm always fascinated by artists and writers that are able to to channel that kind of headspace naturally and not have to really necessarily like 
work super hard at it. I mean, you know, obviously well, I'm a- I get to say that too. Okay. It's not that it always works. I write maybe well with like one or two out of 10 people. Like I usually, it's, it's very hard for me to vibe with everybody. And I used to be really like hard on myself about it. I'd leave sessions and be like, God, it just wasn't working today. Like what was wrong with me? And then I learned that it has nothing to do with me or necessarily the other person, but it just doesn't always work. And I think I've just gotten really good at knowing what works for me, the types of people that work for me or don't, and not trying to like push it. Like I can tell pretty much in the first five minutes if it's going to go well or not. And now I just don't judge that. And I'm like, this is just, you know, not the person for me or not the, the vibe or the session for me, but it's not like I judge that as like a failed session. Maybe I make a new friend, but I think creativity and co-writing especially is like, it's exactly like sex. You are going in the room with someone maybe that you've never met before and being vulnerable. And like, maybe it's going to be like a one-time great, right? Or maybe it's going to be something that like develops over time into something better. Like, I don't know, writing alone, like masturbating can be fun, but it's (laughs) not going to give you always the same satisfaction as like co-writing. So I think writing to sex is my absolute fate. I mean, it's all root chakra, like same creative center. I think that that's like, you know, like sometimes you're just like, oh, that date wasn't good. The sex was terrible. But like, (laughs) you're not like, oh my God, like I'm such a failure in that department. Like, it's just like, yeah, I mean, I keep my headspace as open as possible, but some days it just doesn't work and that's fine. And, and then I just find someone else or something else to make it work. I've never heard anybody equate writing to sex, but that makes so much sense. And I can tell you right now that not definitely, it doesn't mean that if you write well with someone, you're going to have good sex with them. That's <laughs> absolutely inaccurate. Those two right. are not connected. <laughs> they are not connected. So that is not to encourage everyone to go have sex with the people you write well with. Correct. Just like you should probably never sleep with your own band members. It's just, it's just mm-hmm. the thing. You need to keep those lines separated. <laughs> Oh my God. I love it. Thank you so much for that analogy because now that, that is going to, that is going to hold space in my head for years to come. I can tell. (laughs) I would love to make a reel about it, but I'm like, which words would I have to like censor or like, I'll have to talk in very broad metaphors, maybe with like pictural references. Right. Right. Well, in in your captions, have you ever noticed how people will like actually change the word out so that it doesn't like, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Sex will have like a three instead of an E. Right. Yeah. I'll have to do that. There you go. Well, that's, that's how you answer that question. Um, Yeah. I really, you know, it's, it's kind of like that. I know that's what I think. I, I, I for a long time when I wrote this album and I, I spent years working on it and then I finished it and then I didn't write for years after it because it was making me really sad and depressed to keep writing for my hard drive. And I was like writing all these songs and then it was just getting added to the pile. And I was like, what's the point of this? Like I will create in other ways. And I started working on the visuals for the project and making the music videos and knowing that like, you know, I want to build more stuff around this. So that this first album was really my life for like a good 10 years it's my 10 year project that's about to come out and then the second I kind of decided like it's time it's coming out I started to get like 
the downloads for what the next project is going to be. And like we're writing, we pretty much have the second project finished now writing wise and we're starting to produce it. And then I have the concept for the third album. That's an even more ambitious concept album that we're just starting to write. So kind of like when you have something that's like, you know, in, in your mind and it's like taking up space, like the second I kind of let it, let it go, it was like more ideas were coming. So sure. Well, you were, you were creating space. Mm -hmm. That's, that's wonderful. So, um, so when do you anticipate the release of this first project? We are currently setting the date. I mean, it's definitely moved a couple of times just as I've assembled a good support team around it, but Right now, um, our goal is middle to end of June, so very, very soon. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, I wanted to ask, because your music videos are so just awesome, like in, in every aspect of that word, um, I wanted to ask you what your process is for creating your music videos for your songs and if you could just maybe pick a song and walk us through like the process for that one song yeah they're, they're very intensive and it's one of my favorite things we're all DIY it's usually a team of like four or five of us and most of them are my friends and uh, family mm -hmm. and we make everything from the costumes to the sets and um everything in-house oh, wow. <laughs> um <laughs> Right here behind me, it's very uh, taken, it's very disheveled, but this was a leftover remnants of a set that I just refused to take down for one of the next music videos that's coming out. But um, for the first, for Crash Landing, London, Masquerade, and Bones, we shot all of those kind of together. So it was like three months of building and making and then we yeah we shot all of those kind of around the same time and then cigarettes and gasoline was on its own which was probably the first that I consider to be the biggest feat because that one was by far the least amount of money we'd ever spent on a video but all of those videos are not as expensive as you may think they are it's just a lot of time and a lot of time and figuring out skills that we don't always have. So when I write ideas, like sometimes I write the music video ideas before I even write the lyrics of a song because I'm a very visual thinker. And so for my writing, it's usually like music melody, then visuals, then lyrics. And then I kind of tweak the visuals after the lyrics. But um, that's kind of how I backdoor my way to like words is figuring out what the pictures the music and melody bring to me yeah. so when after I've got the songs or like for this project like I knew I wanted it to be a continuous story album it's a visual album so there's but I wanted each song's videos to like stand alone so if you saw one in the middle of the series it wasn't going to be like the, what's happening this is really out of place so it's a very kind of abstract story that's linked together and it's the whole album is meant to be listened to top to bottom and there's lots of Easter eggs and hidden things in each video that will tie into other videos. And we kind of wrote the whole idea for like the overarching concept together. And then, um, then each video, I'll like write a really intensive visual treatment and 
write the stories and make the mood boards for each scene and um, the costumes that I want to see. And then from there, it's just like, I don't really put limits on it as to be like, okay, I pull this off. It's like the craziest treatment I can think of. And then we just figure it out, (laughs) whether it's like finding people to donate their time or like learning how to do something brand new. And all of us have picked up so many random skills since we started DIYing these music videos. And the next three I'm so excited about. We shot them um, last summer and we're editing them now. And, and it was my first time, I think being as like, I co-directed and like worked with my ex on the first five and these three were like 100% like, I'm gonna direct these and edit them and like no one else is gonna really touch touch them in the, that part. So I'm very excited to see how they all come together. And we're about to film the last couple for the series and then this project will be all done. Wow, that, that is so interesting. I Okay, so I'm just gonna take a stab and say your classical background has really helped you like be able to create those melodies and allow your mind to like kind of see the picture in your head before you write the lyrics. Mm -hmm. That is an interesting concept. I've never heard of another artist like getting visuals before even getting lyrics. I mean, usually it's like, you know, lyrics and then melodies and then production, you know, it, Mm -hmm. a lot of times it follows that format. So can you can you describe like when you're writing a piece? Can you describe maybe some of the imagery that you start to see? Yeah, um, I can use this example of a song that I wrote that we're working on production for right now. Um, it's a song that's kind of about your inner child and not really wanting to grow up and it's um and when we started the song I guess the um instrumentation felt very well before I even got to that concept okay so that's like where the song ended up but originally the my guitarist had this really cool like felt almost like carnival to me and that's what it reminded me of like the sound of the the guitar and the and the way he played the notes and so like instantly like my mind was like thinking about a carnival but like then I wanted it to be a little bit fucked up so then we like went to like a couple like a little bit more minor stuff in the chorus and to me that was like a broken carnival where like not a lot is working there and maybe like this one ride is working and so then that was how we got to like very visual like you know it's almost like describing the picture that I see, but it's kind of like that. Like I just play something, but that's why I build tracks before I write. Like, I don't like writing on acoustic instruments. It very, it doesn't inspire me very much. Like, I mean, not to say I've never done it. Like I do write on acoustic instruments, but I think my best, most interesting songs come from working with sound and letting sound inspire me. Cause I can start an idea and then just like close my eyes and picture like where am I in this idea like where does it take me where does it make me feel and then and then I go from there but I don't know if that answers the question it's I think I think everybody does it I just don't know that everybody knows that they do that the waves, they'll be crashing in the sea. 
no, yeah, you answered it perfectly. Um, it's just it's just a really awesome concept to me because I don't think that I've ever personally like you know listened to the instruments and then gotten like my lyrical ideas. I now I'm definitely a riff writer. I'm driven by like the guitar riffs that that I write, but I usually start with a concept and then build a riff and then try to marry the two. So and for for me starting with words or concepts like sometimes sometimes like one of the writers I write with a lot will come with like a, a title or something and and sometimes I can work backwards like that but it almost feels to me like I'm trying to make something that has too much of a boundary first sure. like to me it feels like more limiting when I start with like a concept or with words and I feel like I get more in that like kind of expansive flow state when I'm starting only from sound but that's because I'm way stronger with that than I am words so words to me are kind of like like I can never write great melodies to lyrics like I have notes in my phone of like lyrical ideas that like I'll bring in sometimes but a lot of the times I don't even go back to them it's just kind of like things that happen and I'm like oh I can write poetry and I can write songs but like they can't I can't put melodies to words it's too limiting that is really interesting I I, I struggle with the same and so typically when I'm in a room like I'll I'll take the you know the riff writer position or like even kind of a production standpoint and I'll let somebody else do the the top lining and and the lyric writing and all that stuff. So it's it's honestly really kind of neat. So I, I don't feel so alone. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like being so sonically driven. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely a strength. And it's something that frustrated me for a long time and made me feel like I wasn't a good enough writer or like I didn't have, you know, I, I would see my other writer friends that could just like spill poetry out of their souls. And I was like jealous. And, but then they look at me and they're like, God, you're just a melody machine. And, you know, that's frustrating for them sometimes. So it's kind of like, I stopped seeing it as a weakness and started just seeing it as my, as my strength and like working with people like that and spending more time you know, wanting to be great at lyrics, I've gotten, I mean, I write a lot of lyrics, it's not to say that I don't, but I know that I'm stronger in melody. Mm -hmm. So when I'm pairing myself with co-writers, like I'd never bring in people who are melody driven because I don't want their melodies, like not to be mean, but like, I don't usually take, like, it's very rare. Like sometimes there'll be like a line or two, but it's very rare that anyone else's melodies are in the songs. Sometimes it happens, but I want that to be, you know, a hundred percent me. Sure. So I know I'm going to bring in people who are more poetically strong and they help me because I can like spit a bunch of visuals and be like, you know, this is what I want to see. And this is what I want to feel. Or like this line doesn't feel like I see this enough or like, you know, it's kind of like I've got somebody to like get into the the details with me because I'm more of like a, I, I'm reading this book right now called The Creative Habit by Twyla, Twyla Tharp. She's a choreographer and she's amazing. And this book I picked up when I was in LA and it's been probably one of my favorite books on creativity that I've ever read. It's very different in how she talks about things, but she talks about like the root word of creativity being split kind of into two parts of uh, Zios and Bios and Zios creativity is more like the essence of creativity in life in itself and Bios where we get like biology. It's like the detail work and like the 
action of like creation and how you have like a creative creative dna that's like in you each person does and when you like study any artist's work like you can kind of see if they're individual work not necessarily collaborative work but like you can kind of see how if their lens on the world is very like far away or very like up close and detailed or like in the middle and it, it just like kind of had like this huge epiphany for me where I was like I'm a very like zoomed out like I'm making huge like concepts that like all weave together and they've got all these things but I work really well when I bring in those like tiny detail people that can help me like translate and make sense of like the storm of ideas that is always here and I'm like oh my god that's why I hate social media more than just about anything because distilling all of this down into like a quick like you know three second hook and video like just makes my brain explode I hate it hate it hate it I'm such a long form like I want to tell all the stories and I want to make it pretty and I want to do all these things and it's just like the opposite of me so I've been like I don't know it's taken me a long time to figure out I still haven't figured it out what I want to do on there sure (laughs) trying really hard to figure it out but anyways that just made so much sense to me and then she tells the story about this I think it was the guy who made West Side Story I think it's that musical but it may be another one but I think it's that one where there was this joke that like wouldn't land night after night and he was so frustrated because he thought it was really funny but nobody would laugh and he was a very kind of zoomed out creator and he brought in this other playwright who like came and was like oh the towel in the back is white and it should be yellow and had nothing to do with the joke and he literally switched the towel out and made it yellow and the joke landed every night after that and so I think sometimes like we need other people to come in and and see things from an outside perspective so what's my love for co-writing I don't know well it's smart though because essentially you're stacking the room with individuals that you will you will be able to feed off of right the the Mm -hmm. what their capabilities are paired with your capabilities a really good uh mentor of mine is she used to be the uh, the head of Warner Creative, and she talked about stacking writers' rooms with the right people and how important mm-hmm. that is. And that's not to say that you can't just get into a room with anybody you want to. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can. But when you have somebody that is that you know lyrical poet, and then you have that person who is fantastic with melody creation, and then maybe you have somebody who's a production specialist. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's so many different roles that don't have to be filled by just one person and Mm -hmm. typically you find more success when you allow those other people to come in because it's all about perspective and Mm -hmm. you know my experiences obviously I will draw on just like you will from yours but that's what makes being in a writer's room that's stacked really really powerful because there's all of these people with these skill sets right Mm -hmm. And and that's how amazing songs get created. It's it's not the it's not people with the same skill sets. It's a, a convergence of all of these different entities that really kind of start to work like a well-oiled machine after you've been writing for a while. So yeah. I, I think it's important that we talk about this because we have a lot of 
um, you know, newer musicians who are trying to get their, you know, their foot in the door and they're learning as much as they can. So this is this is a really good educational piece for Absolutely. all of our, our budding songwriters. So please. Yeah, I think that um, it's really easy when you're writing alone. It's hard. I mean, it's really hard to write alone. And I think it is really easy to feel like you suck. <laughs> and um, I still feel like I suck and I don't suck. <laughs> but no. um, but it's like, it's when you have nobody to bounce things off of and when you're trying to like, it's like trying to do arm day, leg day and back day, like all in one day all the time. Like you... <laughs> you're developing so many skills when you're developing, you know, your musical ear and your, you know, melodic sense and your lyrical skills. Like I definitely encourage a lot of people to co-write and I don't, I meet a lot of writers, especially young writers that don't co-write or they don't, they don't want to co-write or they don't like the idea of co-writing. And it's like the main thing that I can suggest is, is co-write and figure out where your strengths are because you're going to be a lot more powerful of a songwriting weapon if you know that and you can place yourself in the right rooms you'll get better cuts and you'll get better results absolutely and you'll and you'll learn from the people who are good at the things that you're not and like I learn processes all the time that have helped me get better at accessing lyrics and I don't know I think I think that's a big thing and to to just write a lot but you know, and not always finish everything. I have so many unfinished songs that I'm like, they were just exercises for me. And like, I know that they're not necessarily right for my artist project, but like, I still just like practice, practice a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it, sometimes it, it takes having those songs that really just are exercises to get to the good stuff. Right. Exactly. Oh, it does. It takes a lot of songs to get to the good stuff. Hundreds. Hundreds. I, I spoke at um, a college. I speak a lot about trauma and creativity and healing your trauma through art creation. And I spoke at a college to a bunch of vocal majors. And in the Q&A part, like a lot of them were asking me, like, I've written, you know, like 10 songs. Like, how do I get into the studio and start recording? And I'm like, I'm like the person that I think everyone either really loves or really hates when I go talk because I'm like, you know, kind of not like a pessimist or a dream crusher, but I'm always just like, I can promise you right now, do not spend money recording your first 10 songs. Like, don't do it. Don't do it. Write a hundred more. Like you have not, I promise in 10 songs, you have not figured out who you are as an artist and you're just going to, you're just going to waste money. It's sure. not going to be the right art. It's just not. That, that makes writing, so much sense. That, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and because it takes, it takes practice getting to the point of really like going through each of these songs. And I mean, we all get influenced by different styles of music, right? So for somebody like me who has a really eclectic taste, like it took forever for me to really figure out where my home base is. Mm -hmm. And, and some days I'm still kind of questioning it, but I can honestly say the first 10 songs that I wrote were absolute shit, right? Yeah. Complete definitely. shit. And, and so I know that I still have a lot of, you know, a lot of room to grow as a, as a writer, but I'm really glad that that is your advice of like, you know, don't write 10 songs and take it to a studio. Do not, do not do it. Don't do it. Even if the songs aren't shit, because they might not be shit. 
but it doesn't mean that they're unique or interesting. It doesn't mean that you've found your artist voice that's individual and unique. I mean, there's so much music out there that sounds like so much other music. And I think you don't start getting to the unique ways that you play with sound until you've written a lot and you've spent a lot of time just like trying things and playing like when I write I don't always even write in my genre like you would be shocked to hear some of the demos for this first album and like how different they are to what I wound up producing in the end and even now like I mean I being inspired by sound like sometimes I'll make a hip-hop track and write a, pop, a rock track over it like it's like I just want to be inspired by sound and then production is where I like hone in the vision and make sure everything feels like a me song but I think that's why my music has a very like multi-genre feel and it doesn't really like it's all me and, and it's melodic structure but like it doesn't have like it wasn't created with like the same chord structures than like you know typical things because I don't put limits on it until it's production time. Yeah, that is that is a really beautiful concept, and uh, I'm really glad that you know that you're sharing your process with us because you know I feel like especially like with how writers' rooms go in Nashville, right? Everybody is trying to write that next hit song, <laughs> but when you are when you are focusing inward on your artistry and what that means putting those barriers on your creativity stifle who you could be as an artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why I say don't even focus at all. Don't even think about your artistry. Just play. Like play is where the hits come from. And I think that more than anything is what I've learned. I mean, every song that we're writing right now, I feel like is so awesome. And we're just like winning at writing like so much more frequently than I used to like making the first album because we're just playing. Like, I'm not thinking about what is this going to be like next. Like, I love finding like, I'll find like a rapper or hip hop writer and be like, let's write a song together. And they're like, okay, like our genre. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't give a fuck about genres. Like, you're going to bring some interesting flavor. You're going to bring some spice to me. Like, so I love finding like, I don't know, playing with the spice cabinet. <laughs> it's kind of like playing with all the genres. It's like, I don't know, seeing what blends to be interesting and different. Yes playing with a spice cabinet uh-huh that that is fantastic advice so thank you <laughs> you're welcome um so with um with the music that you're writing right now um so how many like are, are you writing with like band members uh, in addition to other songwriters like who's who's in your circle right now yeah um Record one, I didn't have a band, so it was a lot of um, my main producer usually and um, and writers that I was bringing in, but this time is very different because I do have a band. And so 100% of the songs we're writing right now are written with the band. And um, the circle's been real small this time. It's really only one or two. I have about two, two lyric heavy writers that I've brought in for these sessions and one of them is my guitarist wife she's brilliant so it's very it feels like a very like family made oh. uh, record and then the other one is this fantastic writer here but I 
I just haven't really wanted to expand the circle too big this time. Kept it, kept it really home. And it's really fun writing this music with the band because we play the first record live a lot and we get to see which moments and which songs really like react well with the crowd or like which things really get people moving. And playing live shows a lot has definitely influenced the music that we're writing. Like, you know, we're thinking about like, when we're producing this stuff we're like oh this moment like we want to do this here so that when we play it live it's like this so yeah. or it elicits this kind of reaction from the crowd there's That's a great story about Charles Reznor and uh when he first started um making music he was like you know he traded studio time for being a janitor in a studio and he would work at night after other musicians were done and the first time he went out on tour he was like booed off the stage and like his music was terrible and he kind of saw how his music didn't translate live at all and then after that was when he like made Nine Inch Nails was kind of seeing crowd reactions to his music and why it didn't work at all and so it's definitely a different experience writing after like playing a lot of live shows and kind of seeing what what works. For sure that's that's a really interesting concept um so there's a as <clears throat> a band that I just had on called Soul Chess, and they're very multi-genre as well. And they're um, like, I guess their approach to like you know all of their all of their live performances and stuff. Like they do a lot of like you know production on the back end and doing like you know live tracks and stuff. So uh, does your band also like play to tracks as well? Yeah, we have a a tracks rig and and lights and tvs and all kinds of fun stuff on our stage like i'm very big about bringing the visual element to the project to stage two so wow. we're designing a lot of cool stuff now that we're adding to the show for you know we're taking a little bit of a break and adding some cool stuff to the show but wow. um yeah we have tracks and right now it's just guitar and drums and we may be adding a bass player soon we'll see very cool so how long does it typically take you to kind of arrange like the full production for a song like with the TVs and the lights and everything? A lot of time. I was going to say this sounds like it takes some some effort. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to redo all of our live videos and that's going to probably be a good week and a half of editing, but I don't do the light programming myself. Um so we get to share some of the work. <laughs> cool. Very cool. So speaking of like performances, um, do you have any like big performances coming up that you'd like to discuss? Yeah, I, I just hopped on a Nashville show. I wasn't going to play here for a while, but I just jumped on a bill May 19th at the end. I'm opening up that, that show and then um, with a music festival July 1st that we're throwing at the Dive Motel that's going to be so much fun it's called Sirens of Summer and it's um it's a female-led music festival and it's got like vendors and comedians and it's going to be so much fun so that's definitely uh the big one that we're getting ready for and then we're going to be traveling to other cities I think like end of summer we're working on an east coast run in August and and then a couple of other exciting things for the end of the year All right <laughs> well, it sounds like you're about to have a banner year 
I sure hope so. We're we're doing everything in our power to have a a great year. I mean, it's it's album release year, so it's it's a exciting and terrifying time. <laughs> sure. Because now we're moving into the part that I'm the worst at, which is promotion. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I understand that. So I'm like, this is my next like big hill to tackle is yeah. promotion and being good at that and learning how to be consistent. Well, I, I wish you the very best of luck. That is, you know, that is all of us, right? We're all trying to figure out the content creation thing and the marketing thing. Um, so I, I wish you the very best of luck. And thank you. I, I cannot thank the you. Day, the day that you ever see me do a uh, song from my car, just like come and kill me though. <laughs> <laughs> it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Let alone taking a microphone that is not plugged into anything you know, outsider in the car. Like I can't do it. I just think it's so cringy. So <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I totally like props to anyone that's being consistent and doing what works for them. But like, I tried to do the car video. I sat in the car and I was like, all right, we're going to do this. I'm going to make this happen. And I literally couldn't get through one take. I just started laughing. And I was like, I cannot promote music that is about authenticity and a brand that is about authenticity and ever lip sync but like also like in such a I don't know I just can't I can't get down with the new style of like everybody copying everybody I think it's I think it's so the antithesis of creative expression and I think that's why so many artists are so depressed right now from social media not to go on a whole nother tangent but no this is important a lot of people are so depressed from you know and and we don't show it but a lot of artists right now we feel the horrible weight that comes from everybody seeing our value on you know the vanity magics and you know if that's not working oh it must mean that your music's not connecting or like you're not successful or the songs aren't good and it's just bullshit and I think it's it you know the art of social media and influencing I think it's a it's a whole nother art in itself but it's definitely like you would never see artists like David Bowie and Freddie Mercury and Annie Lennox and Pat Benatar and like you would never see the legends like that singing in their car or doing TikTok at all you just wouldn't and I think that it's kind of this like nasty structure that we've found ourselves in where it's like you're supposed to have like creative marketing gold on demand and it's like it's supposed to be you know every single day at least once a day you got to post something that's going to be engaging and it's going to give value and it's just like I understand marketing and I understand selling and that it's important and it's a business and it's and it's an important part of it but I think so many artist friends of mine that spend hours a day stressing about their TikTok and you know the fact the way the algorithms work like they're trained to make you addicted to them and to feel depressed when your views are not getting anything so then you spend money on advertising to push things and it's like and I don't even know that a lot of people realize that that's what's happening but the point is to push you to spend money to advertise and it's just I think the vanity metrics game that we're in is terrible and I kind of decided fairly recently that I'm not going to play it and I'm going to do things that feel good to me. And, you know, if that means my Spotify numbers are not very good right now, cause they're not, and I'm aware of that, but like, 
I put on a hell of a show. I make great music. I make great videos and I'm focusing now on the things that I'm great at and I'm finding help in the areas that I'm not because I spent probably a year or two trying to force myself into being good at things that I'm never going to be good at. And I'm fine with that because it's just not the way my brain works. And I don't want to be good at it. Like it, I didn't write songs. I hardly played my instruments. I lost so much musician skill in the past, you know, year or two. And I'm trying to learn how to run a good Facebook ad and how to, you know, hit up enough playlisters and do the song and dance. And, and then I got to the point where I was like, I totally lost my like love connection to this and how can I put out an album and like promote an album that I love so much when I just like disdain every single part of this process and this business and it's going to show in every video that I make that I don't want to be doing it and that it's crap (laughs) and I don't believe any artist should be spending four hours a night filming and editing their TikToks like that's how so many routines that my friends are in and I think it's it's really sad because you feel the moments where it's winning. And I've had the one viral video where I, I felt the power of what it can do and like seeing all the views and comments come in. And it's very like, wow, that was like, you know, I just posted this thing and it, and it got all this reach and it was awesome. And then the next one, you know, you post and you're like, oh, yay. And it's got like 600 views. And it's just like, it's fucking dumb. Yeah. So that's my social media tangent, but that's just, I feel sad with how discouraging it is and how hard it is for independent artists, especially right now. I know that it is affecting all artists, but I think when you don't have the backing to like put your money into, you know, boosting everything and, you know, the very strategic advertising that happens to make things go viral a lot, it's a... it's discouraging and I think we need to find new ways to discover music and I think things like this like this podcast that you have it's like a great platform that you're giving artists to like you know artists like me who are more long-winded and love to talk about things and like make connections and actually like talk to a person rather than a, a screen you give a chance for us to like share our stories in a different way and I think I think that there's other ways, there's other ways to do this. And I'm determined to find them. <laughs> Fucking preach that shit all day long. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Um, <laughs> okay. So you, you literally just embodied everything that I have been feeling myself about my own artistry. And even in, in some capacity, like with, the, with the podcast, I mean, it is, Podcasting is a long game. No matter how you play it, no matter how you play. it takes forever to build a a loyal listenership, and and then even getting to the point when you can monetize it, it takes so much to get there. I'm in I'm in season three. I haven't made a fucking dime off of this podcast, but that's not why I got in it. I got in it because I love audio production and I love talking to people about their artistry. I love talking mm-hmm. to professionals who who can, you know, give knowledge to to budding musicians. I love talking to artists like you who understand that social media is a monster. It can be a good monster, it can be a bad monster. But I am I'm just really it means a lot to me that 
you see social media for what it is because it's it's like you said, you got that one viral video and I'm sure that felt really great. And I'm sure that everybody in your team and your circle was really pumped and excited. And then that next video that you go and you post and it doesn't go viral and then it, it's a it's a hit to your self-esteem, it to your confidence. It's like, oh, okay, so how do I keep recreating this one thing? But as an artist, you shouldn't be recreating the one thing. You should always be moving forward and mm -hmm. expanding that creativity. And and I think what it's going to take for us to find other ways of, you know, finding music and experiencing music and, you know, a different platform that isn't just scrolling through a screen every day. It's going to take more artists standing up to the social media mogul and being like, you know what? This isn't how I want to do my career. This is not, I don't, I don't care about what all of these other people are doing. You know, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, I mean, even in case in point, somebody like Garth Brooks, right? Garth Brooks doesn't have any of his music on any streaming platform. You can't get mm -hmm. it on Spotify. You can't get it on iTunes. You can get it at Walmart. Mm -hmm. You can buy his records at Walmart because he wants it to be accessible to everybody. And he also understands that he will make more money that way because you're buying his physical product that he mm -hmm. put out himself. Yeah. You know? I really spent a lot of time this past six months learning how to build different types of funnels and learning how to figure out, I mean, still don't have it down, but learning email marketing and monetization because this business is absolutely just like, can be such a money pit where you're just like dumping so much for exposure, but you're not getting anything back. Or like, I think, you know, Spotify playlisting and ads are really like the worst. I mean, I they, they're good for you to get the numbers, to get opportunities and to look attractive. They are, they're important for those things. But to me, it's almost like a business like generating leads that you can't capture because you have no way of knowing who's looking at your Spotify, who's streaming your songs. Like, you know what city they're in, but like, cool. How do you retarget them when you want to like, you know, show them something new or like ask them to buy your merch? Like you don't, unless they follow you. But like, you know, when they're, you know, a lot of people just stream music and they like a song, but they don't necessarily go follow the artist. Like, sure, it's kind of like, lighting money on fire and that's what I felt like you know doing all the traditional these are the music marketing things you're supposed to do for so long it feels like lighting money on fire and having very little return and so I'm very big now about studying other businesses and how they reach customers and like trying to kind of reframe what a music business can look like and I haven't like cracked the code or anything yet, but I feel like I've gotten closer and I'm building a private community, the purple cult, where we are, you know, creative people that support each other. And it's not that you have to be in a creative profession. It's just people that want to live a more creatively free life because everybody can and everybody deserves that. And so I've just focused a lot on building more like smaller community, super fan type people right. that I don't even like calling people fans. Like, I feel like all my fans are like my friends. I yeah. think it's kind of, I don't know. But yeah, like talking to people, actually talking to people and like building a different type of community. And I think live music is, I mean, it sucked when live music went away because I think I connect to people the most through live shows. And it's been like a steady, slow thing to get people to come back out to shows, but it's harder than ever, I think, to sell tickets. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it's social media is a monster. <laughs> it is. Monster. It is. Well, Anastasia, thank you so very much for for this incredible, insightful conversation in so many ways. Um, I think you. I think it would be really awesome, maybe you know, in in the next season, if you would want to come back and talk more about. Um, you know, these small communities that you're creating and talk more about like, you know, like, let's say in like the next six months, what happens with all of these little communities that you're building? And, you know, if you've cracked some of the codes and you want to come back and share them, I would Absolutely. love to have you back. I would love to be back. This was like such an awesome interview. Thank you so much. Oh. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. See, and that's, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Like we, we have a connection. We, we had never met each other before getting on a zoom call today. And we just had a real discussion about, you know, not just your music and your creative process, but also the business side of music and how it is just it is fucking draining. <laughs> it is. And I don't think that there's enough education for artists. I mean, of course you can learn things on YouTube and there's a lot of people that sell really expensive courses that like don't necessarily have the answers for you because it is never one size fits all. But I don't think like in the actual business end of it, that there's a lot of like education for musicians and so a lot of us wind up spending way too much money on the wrong things or like trying for the wrong things and not understanding how to build a monetizable system and I mean I've made that mistake for a lot of years and I'm trying to learn and it's not an easy thing to learn especially when you have an artist type brain like it's very opposite and it takes it's taking a long time for me to figure it out <laughs> but I know it's gonna pay off more than some other stuff will. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, again, thank you again for the conversation. Thank it's you. been it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anastasia, for coming on the show and talking about your amazing music and your incredibly stunning visual art that goes along with all of your releases. We cannot wait to hear more from you. And so for everybody that's listening today, make sure that you check out the links in the show notes for Anastasia's website and all of her music. Go get immersed in her experience. It's incredible. So for those of you that haven't liked and subscribed to our podcast yet, please do. 
please do indeed. And if you feel so inclined, please give us a review on Apple or Spotify. It really helps us out. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.